Welcome to the 9 to 5 Joy podcast. I'm Christine Selby. And I am Mappy Garcia. And we're on a mission to making workplaces more joyful. Thank you for joining us today. We are on our very first field trip today. We flew from Miami to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we're really excited. We are at Menlo Innovations, and we're interviewing CEO and Chief Storyteller, Rich Sheridan. And we're super excited to be here, Rich. Um, Your book was part of the inspiration for our podcast. So right away when we were talking about this, I went out and I got uh, Joy Ake, and I started reading it. I was like, Mappy, you have to read this. It's so good. Um, Because every single chapter, I would just be like, yes, that's a great, yeah, that's a that's how you bring joy to workplaces. Um, so really excited to be here, not just because of what you're doing, but because you've been a really big part of our journey. So thank you. Well, that's humbling to hear. Uh, neat when a book has that kind of effect. So I'm delighted to have you guys here. So a little bit more about Rich. He is uh, the author of two very successful books, Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, and Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy, and eliminate fear. Uh, Rich's passion for inspiring organizations to create their own joy-filled cultures has led him to address audiences across the world through four continents and 18 countries and counting. Um, and what motivates him to keep going? It's joy, yeah. right? He, he believes in that concept and he wants other people to understand it too. And that has been noticed by people in the world. So NPR, U.S. News and World Report, Bloomberg, um, and Harvest, Harvard Business Review have all taken note of the work that Rich Sheridan does, and he's been honored with awards as well. Inc. Magazine named Menlo Innovations the most joyful company in America, and Menlo has also been recognized by the Alfred P. Sloan uh, Award for Business Excellence in Workplace Flexibility for 11 straight years and has received a Lifetime Achievement Award for Freedom at Work from, from World Blue, as well as five revenue awards from Inc. Magazine. Today, people come from all over because they want to learn about you and about what Menlo does. So again, very excited to be here. Um, and we want to start just by getting a little bit more understanding of your journey. So as I've mentioned, I've nerded out on your books. <laughs> they'll be big time. So I got so you tell me this. Yeah, I did. Yeah, but um, but but why don't you start with just telling us how you landed on joy? You kind of had a big moment, and you had some things going on in your heart and your mind where you were frustrated with work, but then you decided to come back and really lean into joy. Tell us about that. Yeah, there were early on in my career after graduating from the University of Michigan, I had. Um, two lines going on in my life. One that looked perfect on uh, the typical up and to the right kind of line, raises promotion, stock options, greater title, greater authority. I went from program like 1982 to vice president of R&D at a high-flying public company here at Ann Arbor uh, by 1997. And so I had everything the world measures as success in here uh, I wanted out. I didn't want to be anywhere near the industry. Uh, I had actually contemplated an escape route. Uh, I was thinking of moving my wife and my three daughters to the boundary waters of Minnesota and starting a canoe camp. And if you know that part of the country at all, uh, not be given where you're from, you probably would not appreciate the cold and the, and the snow and that sort of thing. Um, 
but uh, you know, I didn't want to be in the industry. And so what I was experiencing was this vacillation between chaos, the land of never getting anything done, and bureaucracy, the land of never getting anything started. There were lots of difficult meetings, phone calls, uh, unhappy users of software because I was in I'm in the software business I was then I I just you know hey, there's another title that could probably be on my card chief optimist <laughs> even though I was stuck in this room full of manure I thought there's got to be a pony in this room somewhere there's got to be a better way of doing things and my journey out wasn't a quick journey uh, but it led me to authors and books so like you Christine I was inspired by many authors along the way. And it's probably one of the reasons I so wanted to write books, because I knew what impact books could have on others. And so uh, 1999, after two years of uh, R&D, uh, VP of R&D at Interface Systems, I had what Franz Johansson in his book of the same name calls a lick moment, where suddenly all the pain, all the reading, all the studying, all the thinking, it all became perfectly clear what I'm supposed to do next. And I met a guy, James Goble, who would, was a consultant to me then, and now is my co-founder at Venmo. I read a book by a fellow frustrated programmer. Uh, I saw a video on an industrial design firm called IDEO in California, and it just all became clear. And over the next two years, transformed that public company into something that looks like Menlo does today. Mm. And I'd probably still be there, except in 2001, the internet bubble burst. Mm. We had been acquired by a California company. They had to shutter every remote office they had. And for the first time in my career, I was out of work. And one woman told my wife, who's sitting right back behind me here, uh, she works here, um, that I'd lost my job. And she looked at me in tears in her eyes and she said, you're unemployed. And I said, no, I mean, I'm not here now. <laughs> and uh, because while I lost everything in the internet bubble burst, job, title, authority, paycheck, stock options went to zero. They couldn't take away what I had learned in those two years. And what I had learned alongside James was a better way of doing things than was customary. Um, as the years went on, we began to refer to that as joy. Um, and kind of the rest is history, and I'm sure we'll dive into elements of it as we go along. But that's the backstory. Um, you know, early joy to disillusionment, back to joy again. I love so so much of what you said, um, because it really takes me also to this idea of thinking about what's possible, right? When you think about the optimism, um, I feel that we have so many informal and conversations related to the podcast that where people go like, oh, that's just what corporate America looks like, right? And that's just the way it is. And, you know, like there is no sort of way to change it. And one of the things that I feel has driven us so much to your work and to what you have created is the fact that you said, well, no, there is another way, and and you can show that, you know, so. Um, so I it produces results. Yeah. This isn't, uh, we had fun here. There is laughter, there is humor, there is uh, happiness, but uh, not every minute of every day, of mm -hmm. course, uh, but there are also results. We have to sustain ourselves. We are, there is no, um, just, you know, give you a little bit of inside knowledge about Menlo. There's no outside funders. There's no investors. We built this from scratch, uh, and James and I are the co-owners of the company. We have to survive off of the profits we generate. So somehow or other, 
this has to be, make sense to our customers. That's why right. HMP does. Um, that's totally. So tell us a little bit. So when you started that journey at Interface, one of the first things, if I'm understanding this correctly, that you implemented was pairing. Yes. And you saw a tremendous change. So, and actually I want to connect it to something you just said, because you said it's not just, you know, happy or not having parties all the time. We're also bringing a lot of results, right? Um, so tell me about when you made that change at Interface and implemented change, uh, excuse me, pairing, what was the result of that? Yeah, and uh, there's a fun little side story of introducing this concept. So let me describe yeah. that just to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, in our world, we're software developers predominantly. About 60% of my team are programmers. Um, and programming in general, if people conjure up, if they're not a programmer, or even if they are, you think about what does a programmer's life look like at work? It is typically in what I call a sensory deprivation shame with a cubicle. Library quiet, often people with headphones on and they're solitarily working at their keyboard writing code. Uh, it is not like that at Menlo. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two people on one computer sharing a keyboard at a house. Those pairs are assigned and we switch them every five working days. So we could talk a lot about why we do that. Back at Interface, all of my programmers up until the moment of transition were living that lonely, isolated, quiet life as programmers. And one of the books I read by Kent Beck on something called extreme programming uh, was talking about this idea of putting two programmers on one keyboard. Now, I was a VP at that point. I'd been a programmer for much of my career. There was a part of my brain, just like everybody else's, that was thinking, why would I cut productivity in half? You know, computers aren't that expensive. I want you know, two hands on each keyboard, not four hands on one keyboard. I also saw the wisdom in what Kent Beck was describing. So I brought this to my team and I said, I think we should work like this. We should try this. My team went dead silent. They wouldn't even make eye contact with me. Yes. And uh, finally I pressed them. I said, I want to know what you guys think about this. And one of my guys raised his hand. I said, Gil, tell me what you think. And he said, Rich, blood. And he said, don't pull me out of my office. Don't put me out in a big open room. Don't make me share a computer with another human being. And for goodness sakes, please, please, please don't make me share my code. It's my code. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I had two guys try it. They came up to me after the meeting. They didn't want to raise their voice because they could feel the pushback. And they said, we would have run the six row. So they did. And one of those guys who had told me he was thinking of quitting because he was so despondent, uh, after the three-week experiment, caught me in the parking lot of him and said, Rich, are you still going to pay me to work here? I said, what do you mean? He said, this pairing thing is so much fun, it doesn't feel like work anymore. And uh, I'm not sure you should pay me. So, okay, this was the initial reaction. Blood, mayhem, murder, I will work for you for free. I was not getting lukewarm reactions. But the camaraderie, this human energy, the the um, the progress we were making, the amount of things we were learning together, because 1999 to 2001 was the beginning of the Internet years. <laughs> there were new languages to learn, new technologies to learn, new techniques to learn. Our programmers knew none of those things. But by pairing them together and switching the pairs, the learning engine kicked in. The excitement kicked in. The 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 camaraderie kicked in. And um, 
uh, in, you know, I guess easily said now, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. I, I never looked back. I've been running software teams like this for the last 24 years, and I would never go back. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, and then you started Menlo, and that was just, it seems like after... Okay, so you went through this journey of implementing pairing and started making changes to the interface. And then there was the downturn that you you mentioned earlier, and you said so beautifully to your wife, I, I'm not unemployed, I'm an entrepreneur. So there's this natural start of um, implementing the, or, or creating memo from this philosophy that, like you said, people couldn't take away from you what you would learn. So tell us about that process and that journey and how you got started and how you would describe where you are now. Yeah, you know, I could see that we had built a system, a replicable system for designing and developing software, which is something I love to do. I was a programmer in my early days. I loved it when the work I did, I could feel proud of, <laughs> that it saw the light of day, it actually got delivered to the world, and that ultimately the users who used it absolutely loved what was created, that it made their lives better. That's what programming can do when you do it well trouble is in my early career, I had so few instances of that, that I began to think it was random and that there was no system to that. What I discovered in those two years of interfaces, no, there is absolutely a system you can put together to create compelling software that is maintainable other than the people who wrote it, doesn't require any overtime at all, uh, and you can still hit your deadlines. Uh, can actually delight the end users and the people who create it can do it with energy and pride. And so uh, we took that same system and brought it into Menlo. We decided we were going to create a custom software design and development firm that would use these processes to create software on behalf of other customers. And uh, very early on, we adopted kind of a big, hairy, audacious mission, which was to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology mm -hmm. for the people who pay for it for the people who build it, and for the people who ultimately use it. And in order to do that, we still had to invent some new things. One of them that is kind of a signature dish of ours, something we call high-tech anthropology. Menlo high-tech anthropologists actually have that on their business card. Mm -hmm. uh, you've met a few of them this morning. I think you're going to be interviewing one of them right. later. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's this whole system there. And then, of course, the big challenge is how do you get customers? Mm -hmm. You know, you're in 2001, the IT landscape in the United States had just been decimated by the internet bubble bursting. There were literally people espousing that there would never be a need for another U.S.-based programmer again because it looked like all that out was going offshore. And here we are starting up an IT services front. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about optimism. Um, delightfully, the the uh, community around us, Ann Arbor, is uh, is a very high-tech community. There were a lot of needs, and we got very early customers quickly because people were intrigued by what they were seeing. Uh, as you've noticed, you've been here just briefly, but Menlo is a very um, visually intriguing place. Uh, there's something to come see here. That's why thousands of people do come here to see us. And so uh, as those early customers started showing up, asking us questions about why we're working the way we're working, they were intrigued. They wanted to try it. And so we had some wonderful early opportunities to demonstrate the work we were doing 
And um, then we were building our own reputation at that point in the Right. What keeps coming back to me as you're um, explaining all of these is it's almost like you, it's not almost like you were humanizing the software experience and making technology much more, you know, to the service of people as opposed to something that's sort of obscure and only a few people have access to and only some can understand. So, and I think that the, 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 the way in which you explained it and that pairing component coming in first, it's almost like that had a ripple effect that, you know, transformed and like completely changed the way in which people were approaching their work, but also the way in which you could tell the story about what you were doing and how to engage with your customers. So I I, I would like you to maybe expand a little bit because you did touch a bit on, you know, how two people coming in and sharing a keyboard together, like really, in a way, I was thinking of this pandemic of, um, you know, isolation that we had in the United yeah. States. And I just think like, well, that's it, right? Like, how can we and, 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 and what is the beauty and all of the amazing stuff that comes back when we have two human beings who can actually interact in real time, who can collaborate? And I'm sure there are a lot of challenges with that. But I would like you to just maybe, you know, spend some t more time talking about like what you see and how you, you know, what's the dance that happens when you have two people uh, doing okay. it. Yeah, uh, I will say businesses, business leaders, maybe even society idealizes programming. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is they picture that there's this really smart human being it sits down at a keyboard and her fingers are just moving away and they're creating beautiful, perfect code the first time and it's elegant and can ship to the world and it's going to make their businesses tens of millions of dollars and tomorrow, tomorrow. Right. Uh, that is not the reality of our, uh, our industry. Uh, the reality is uh, programmers get stuck a lot. Um, they are trying to come up with an answer. Sometimes they think they have an answer when they actually don't. Mm -hmm. uh, they think they did it completely, but they left some big gaping hole in it that later comes back on them as a serious bug or a security flaw or something like that. Um, and pairing is the first healing mechanism for that. Mm -hmm. uh, because what will happen is, and we have to teach our team to do this when they join us, when we onboard them, the person whose hands are on the keyboard and on the mouse typing the code in has to learn to think out loud mm. because programming isn't a typing speed contest. It's a problem-solving contest. And so by articulating, this is how I'm thinking about the problem. This is how I'm thinking I will solve this problem. Having the person sitting next to you asking you questions, thinking about mm -hmm. what you're saying, challenging you, saying, hey, hold on a second. Not sure you're thinking about this the right way. Uh -huh. That intervention happening at the moment mm. the code is being created starts to improve the code second by second, minute yeah. by minute, hour by hour. Yeah. And a lot of times those improvements that are always going to be needed don't happen for months or years later. Nobody remembers how the code was created in the first place. They don't understand it's interconnectedness with other things. So it compounds the original problem. We didn't find the problem in the first place. Now we're trying to fix it months or years later. 
And because we don't remember it well enough, we start making more problems because we don't remember it. Yeah. And all of this uh, comes home when the two of us are working together. And then the other construct at Menlo that kind of, you know, if the pairing enough doesn't blow people's yeah. minds, it's the fact that we switch the pairs every, yeah. at least every yeah. five days. Because you think, oh, my gosh, you know, Moppy and Rich are really good together. They should, yeah. We should just leave them together. And then all of a sudden, Rich is paired with Christine, and then Christine is paired with Moppy. And, you know, what's the benefit of that? It seems like that's slowing you down. But what it is is it's continually bringing in these other insights, these other checks and balances. The thing you and I thought worked perfectly, and Christine comes the first day, asks some question, and, you know, stupid question, and then you come, you're just over there, you come in. Oh, God, she's right. We we forgot completely that that isn't the way it's supposed to. And so we're just continually challenging ourselves along the way. You might imagine this requires a tremendous amount of humility at every person. Yes, you could. Because if I'm used to working alone, yeah. and my idea, you know, a lot of programs, I'm a better programmer than everybody else. Humility, but also I would imagine that it creates this sense of like, now I'm not going to have a problem when I go to present the product, right? Like you said, that all gets worked out on the front end. So there's probably less like later on feeling like, oh, I worked so hard on this and now yeah. it didn't, it just wasn't, I have really back and restart or it's in real, it's in real, right? And then also like the way it applies to other industries, like of course you're in the software industry, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about, my gosh, like this applies to writing a contract to, you know, like coming up with a policy with a lot of things that we just kind of, oh, this is the role of this person who was hired for that. So they do it and then they bring in, somebody reviews it and that's it. But like the collaboration nature of these and the, you know, like really, I, I also feel is like using a lot of people's strengths and then the vulnerability factor for it, right? Like they having the open communication and being able to like really understand that two hands thing better than one <laughs> when there is like the environment to be able to do so. You know, and you think about even how we personally are organized, our bodies, you know, our stereoscopic vision often gives us much clearer view of something we're seeing than if we just cover one eye up and we don't see it in exactly in three dimensions anymore. Um, you know, as you said, two heads are better than one and yep. a third head. And, and, you know, and what's wonderful is, you know, for example, uh, two of our team members uh, are, are come from Africa. And Helen just left yesterday for Ethiopia to be with her family for three weeks. Andrew, you heard it down in stand-up today, is doing that later in December. What's wonderful about that as a part of our culture, of a part of our joy, because we've paired Helen with mothers and she has switched the pairs, there is no singular thing she knows that not everybody else in the team knows. <laughs> and we have actually have a policy. It's not written down. It's more like humorously supported that Helen is not to check email or take a computer with her and mm-hmm. for work purposes when she's on vacation. Well, we expect her to stay away and... Um, enjoy time with her family who she hasn't seen for a number of years. And if we catch her checking email, we will chastise her when she comes in a very, in a very humorous way. Uh, you can ask Lisa about that. She'll, she'll tell you the fun story about, uh, that in her life. Uh, and the point is that, uh, I think 
you know, along the way managerially, we've forgotten that there is a component to keeping our teams energized and alive that is that refresh component who's stepping away and clearing your mind and being able to go off and do things that are just fun and, uh, you know, almost like, you know, like we imagine a sabbatical sheet. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if anybody ever gets to take a sabbatical in their life, I'm guessing that, that, that is a very small percentage of the population, but every vacation should feel like. Absolutely. And now that you're touching on that, I'm going to jump a little bit, but, um, uh, we, we, we are very curious about the way in which, you know, the organization is structured as far as, so what we've seen or experienced or heard from our guests is a lot of, you know. And and then we also wanted to mention the Deloitte um, survey that came out a couple of months ago, where they were talking about, you know, the importance of managers feeling supported by leadership when it comes to employee well-being and to, you know, creating practices that are supportive of people's joy. Uh, but then also those managers being able to have the tools to use with their employees and to have a uh, an environment that's supportive of that, right, of, of, of that joy. But then also being held accountable to it. So I think in a way you touch on some of those things because to me, you know, like this informal way of people going on vacation and being sort of not forced, but you know, like like having the expectation that they're not gonna check email is a way to keep them keeping them accountable too for using that time to recharge. So I we would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, that sort of balance between keeping people accountable for the things that we know support joy and are important to the infrastructure of your organization, while at the same time, um, you know, sort of giving them the leisure and the support and, and, and creating this environment that obviously has to be maintained in different levels of, you know, expertise or seniority in the organization. So. What what are your thoughts on that? Oh my God! How many how many hours do we have? I know. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot packed in all those <laughs> questions. So let me try and um, pull apart some pieces that uh, then drive us here. Uh, one is uh, you will notice as you walk around our space a tremendous amount of visual management. Uh, we post our financials on a visual board. We post our pay structure on a visual board. We post our uh, our traditional HR review practice, which we call prosperity on a visual board. Uh, all of our work plans are on the walls. The status of them is measured with yarn and push pin um, and, or um, sticky dots. And um, uh, all of this is to communicate a level of transparency that makes it very difficult to hide mm-hmm something that isn't working right or something that isn't fair or something that's out of balance. <laughs> and um, so in many ways, if you asked our team who they work for, they might, if you really pressed them, they'd say they might work for the process of memo. <laughs> uh, and this process is one that isn't onerous. It isn't time consuming. It's actually very both efficient and effective, uh, but it is literally impartial. Um, you know, a red dot means we're stuck. A yarn above the card we're working on on the wall says we're behind. A green dot uh, below the yarn on the wall says we're ahead. All of this is simply radiating in information. As we like to say about many of our visual management systems, none of them solve problems. Yeah. They expose them so that the humans can work on the problems. 
but it does it in a fairly um, unemotional way, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, There is a goal not to have fear inside of this type of system because our view is if we pump fear into the room (laughs) around any of these things, bad news won't go away. It will go into hiding. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't want it to go into hiding. We want to succeed. And and I think, you know, going all the way back to what does joy actually mean? Yeah. We have a definition for it. Joy for us is seeing the work that we do get out of the world and delight the people it's intended to serve. So it's an externally focused purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we don't believe for a second you could produce that kind of joy in the world unless there's joy and happiness in the room. Mm-hmm. But the focus is who do we serve mm-hmm. and what would delight look like for them. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of accountability externally, not to each other, not oh, the boss is coming, I need to look good, uh, not I need to have my green dot in just the right place. And then the fact that because we pair, any one of us can get off track. I can get off track. Mm-hmm. But when I have a pair partner sitting there with me, they're going to help me get back. Right. They're going to hold me at college. Right. And so, um, you know, all of those systems are in place to um, keep our mind and attention focused on the business results we're trying to produce. Uh, we actually have an intriguing relationship with our clients who visit us once a week, either in person or virtually, to check in on the progress. And they actually show it to us. We don't show it to them. They show the progress we made. They show it to my team. We have an event called a show and tell. Mm-hmm. We're building software. They can run the software that we've built so far. And it's not complete, but it's on your, it's a work in progress. Much like if you were building a home, yeah. a custom home, mm-hmm. you're probably going to go to the site. You're going to watch the two by fours going up. You're going to watch the electrical lights. You're going to be looking to see, is the window where I thought it was going to be? Is the driveway going in the way I expected? And you're holding those workers accountable simply by visiting. Right. Same thing our clients do with us. Yeah. And we want to expose our clients to the same level of transparency in our work as we do in doing our work. And by having the clients come in and show us the work mm-hmm. we're doing, it's not this waving of hands ceremony. This is, you know, it's be really crave. Yep. No, if you got this story card done now, the software should work like this. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it does. Yeah. It's a very true assessment mm-hmm. of the progress. And that's a motivating, right? Because yeah. like, oh, I know my client is coming in next week and this is going to be in their hands. Yeah. And B, I think to what you said earlier, it makes things visible really quickly. And that is, it actually reminds me, so I'm in the education space and um, John Hattie, I don't know if you've ever you wrote a book called Visible Thinking. And it's about it's about kind of exactly what you're talking about in the education space and how you can't with students really know if they've learned anything unless they can make what they've learned and what they do visible. Yes. Um so it's a, a really cool parallel for me. Yeah, and you think about how many systems we are part of that are all hidden behind the scene. <laughs> You imagine a traditionally organized project where the project manager is using an electronic tool to manage the project, and they're the only ones who can see it. Mm-hmm. They're the only ones. And, of course, what are they feeling? They're feeling the load of saying, well, I'm the only one who knows that we're behind. Yeah. And, you know, and they're getting emotionally reactive, and they're, you know, pressing their team, you guys got to get on track. Well, in our world, everybody can see whether we're not on track or we're not on track. And, oh, by the way, 
you know, a week from today, the customer is going to be in a checking in on us. Yeah. And we're not always perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a mantra here at Menlo to keep us in that safe, creative uh, state of mind is make mistakes. I love that too. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there's two components to that because I think language is uh, a lot of organizations will use the term fail fast. Mm-hmm. I like that word, fail. You know, if you think of the educational context, yeah. failure is like a black mark. It's like a failure like blackbird. You let an F on your exam and it will follow you for the rest of your days. And making mistakes is like a corrected homework assignment right. with red lines and everything. And uh, and it's an encouragement to say, hey, I checked your work and this is something yeah. that uh, you could do better next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then make mistakes faster. Mm-hmm. Because... This side of heaven, all of us are humans and we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So we have two choices. Assuming and acknowledging we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We can either make small mistakes or really being slow in mistakes and make yeah. of mistakes and mistakes that might actually sink our organization. Yeah. So we prefer the faster version. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot less fear around that. There's a lot less... Uh, anxiety because there's time to course correct. Yes. And, you know, the elite organization is, is a course correcting entity. Yeah. It, right. Yeah. They thought, they, you know, we're, we're always trying to predict the future. Today, going to be like, what's next week going to be like? What's next quarter? What's next year? Yeah. Predictions are always all. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it's it's interesting to focus on the prediction as opposed to like what's actually at hand right now, what I have control over and what I can. Uh, modify and I think it also goes back to you know the the definition of joy that you have right so if it's really about the end customer right it's not about finishing this what we're doing within you know three months or whatever so that we get paid out of it uh, but really it's about them right and how do we build something that's successful to them and in that sense it's the 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 the, the fact identifying mistakes earlier is even a higher yeah stakes. well sometimes we do exactly what the customer asks us to do they come in for show and tell. They look at the screen. They touch the software, and they're like, "You know what? It is exactly what I asked you guys to do." Mm. And now that I look at it, it's now pulling me. <laughs> so they made a mistake. They perfectly described something. We perfectly executed. But now that they see it, yeah, right. And you go back to the home building example. Yeah, yeah. Oh, why do I have the kitchen looking out at the road? I want the kitchen looking out yeah. at the beautiful backyard with the oak trees that are turning to light bulb colors in the ball. Uh, and so we catch those mistakes earlier. We can correct them while they're still small. Yeah. Another thing that I just wanted to point out is about the visual space. Like I, I'm, I'm a sticky person all the way. And uh, it, it's just so like the, the, the joy in color too. Like I feel that there is a lot of uh, the environment. Um, but it's very interesting, and and what keeps coming to me is, you know, I'm very obviously high technology company that works in technology. What you would expect, you're only using technology to communicate because it's more efficient or because it's like if you guys were able to walk around here, it's all you know, sticky notes with handwritten stuff, like with cards, with dots, with. So I just feel that you know there is so much um, like uniqueness to that. But also going back to the humanity aspect, right? And the um, not everything has to be through a screen. There is also opportunity for us to enrich the environment and to have that visibility uh, that's really easy to access. 
and it's really, you know, just out there. So I think that's also like him. Yeah. And we often say about the tools we use, which surprise people for the very reason you say, you're a software company. And that's using great for the plan. And our simple statement is we choose tools we believe work better for humans. And humans are visual, tactile, creak, well, this sound I'm making is lighting up so many neurons in our brains, you know, um, the, the fact, you know, for example, the handwritten story cards, mm -hmm. people asked us, well, why don't you just type them in and print them out? And they said, well, what we found when you're typing something as your temptation is to cut and paste, drag and drop, and you end up creating something, A, that's way too long and nobody's going to read it. Mm -hmm. And B, you probably didn't even read it yourself. Mm -hmm. You grab this text here, you grab this document there, you cut and paste, you drag and drop. I can guarantee you, if you write something by hand, you read it. <laughs> I believe it is actually impossible yeah, yeah. not to read something you wrote with your own Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I want to talk about fear a little bit, which you talked about earlier. And I, uh, when I read your last book and, and you started talking about this concept, I was like, this is, it's so important. Um, and, and it was for me something that it, like I feel like my thinking is getting deeper and deeper on, on the impact. So you talk about one of the leader's jobs is to pump fear out of the room. And that fear is really kind of, it's a, it's a joy killer. It kills our joy. I'm curious. I would be curious about your story. When did you come up with this premise? Like fear is something that kills joy. You know, I think all of us, as we rise up through life in general, but certainly in our business careers, should be keeping some lists. And the list we should be keeping, uh, I've actually been coaching one of my daughters on this, is particularly as it relates to, say, how you're led, how, uh, how you're made at Eaton. If something didn't go well, if you didn't feel good about some interaction you had, say, with your boss, write that down. Mm -hmm. Keep track of um, something went well. Keep track of that, too. Because what I told her was, I said, look, there will come a day where you rise up to be in one of those kind of positions. And I want you to look back at those lists and you can make a conscious decision not to do the things that didn't work when you were. And I will tell you that, um, I had some bosses over the years that used fear-based techniques. Yeah. Um, I, I often tell this story of one boss that would show up at my funeral at about 4.45 on a Friday afternoon. And he'd step in and say, Hey, Rich, how's it going? Wow. That's good. So what you working on? Well, that big project. How's that going? Well, I'm a little behind. Oh, so you're coming in this weekend? No, man. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you feel your blood try? Shut up, sir. I'm sure I'm in here. I don't know what you So I didn't like that guy. Yeah. And then I became that guy. Yeah, I can tell you I didn't like being there. And so where do we learn how to lead others? I think we typically learn it from the people who led us. And so there's this whole cascade of history that, you know, we can say, well, how did you get to be like this? And that's what I was led like. Yeah. And the guy who was smart enough to promote me into management, you know, we use these techniques. I should cascade them forward. And, um, you know, and I would say that the uh, claiming simple moment for me 
was when I took my eight-year-old daughter, Sarah, to work with me on a Take Your Child at Work Day. And I was a newly minted VP at the time. Um, their schools had the, you know, Take Your Child at Work to inspire them on a career of their own. Well, she was, you know, smart enough as an eight-year-old to bring her coloring books, crayons, and stickers because she's going to watch a VP work. Day. I mean, what could be a more blind day for an eight, eight-year-old? Uh, but at the end of the day, I asked her, I said, Sarah, what'd you think? What did you learn today? Because I knew our teacher would ask her the next day, hey, how was your experience? Tell me what you learned. She said, what I learned, Dad, is you're really important here. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, what I saw was people lined upside your door all day long. What I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. You, oh. Now, she was very proud of her dad. I was mortified. Well, I realized that I had built a hero-based organization, and I was the number one hero. And the only way to scale hero-based organizations is over time. And I'm looking across the table at this eight-year-old thing. I don't want to miss the best parts of being a dad. And so I realized that first and foremost, to get away from fear-based management systems, the change had to be seared inside of me. Now, fortunately, I also had some good bosses, bosses who took a different approach. Uh, and I started reading books, a lot of books about how to do this differently. Uh, Tom Peters, uh, In Search of Excellence, and the books that followed was a great set of leadership books for me. Um, and so uh, looking at books like today, like by Patrick Lencioni, uh, the Arbinger Institute, uh, uh, Vital Smarts, or now called Crucial Learning, uh, you know, Crucial Conversations and that sort of thing. All of these books were communicating very effectively that there is a better way. You can do things differently, and you have to. And my favorite quote in the book I read along that way that kind of, you know, stuck with me uh, was by John Naisbitt. They wrote this book, Megatrends, in 1982, and he was predicting the future. And he was predicting actually where we are right now. And he said this interesting thing. He said, the greatest advancements of the 21st century are not going to occur because of technology, but because of a better understanding of what it means to be human that cognitive psychology may be one of the most important things we should be working on as leaders, as managers, as, as, uh, as human beings. And um, if you think about, for example, what does every company need today mm -hmm. when there's AI and machine learning and big data and robotics and all these new systems coming out? They need the thing that is the most human part of us. They need creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. Yeah. Right, because those things you don't get those from the computer. Yep. Um, in fact, the computers came from those things. The AI large language models came from those things. There were humans that built those things, and the fact of the matter is, uh, that comes from the part of our brain yeah. that literally shuts down when we are afraid. That when we are afraid, we go not to our human selves. We go to our reptile selves. We go to our amygdala. Uh, we are in fight or flight mode. All of our blood and energy is going to our extremities because I'm either going to punch you in the nose or run away as fast as I can, or some combination of the two. Yeah. Not a good way to get to creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. <laughs> so. And I want to, I want to, I'm going to channel my inner Menlo here. That I reflect that that's you a high tech anthropologist. I got it right. High tech anthropologist question. Yeah. What do you think a workplace would look like with no fear? 
Well, I'll say uh, there will be more laughter. Um, I sometimes people ask me, how do you measure joy? And I would say laughs per hour. And it isn't that we're all out here making jokes all day long, but the ease with which people can laugh at themselves yeah. uh, to gracefully laugh at someone else without coming with them. Um, you feel a human energy when you're in the room. Yeah. There's more noise. There's more communication. Uh, I'll give you, you know, sometimes uh, it, for me, it's easy to promote the op an idea or a question by answering the opposite. Uh, I visited this organization uh, in town here. I went in a kind of a late Friday afternoon to meet with the CEO. I was sitting in their lobby and it was so quiet <laughs> in this office. My ears were ringing. <laughs> Which may be a different problem. We have a medical issue there, right? Um, and I thought, there's nobody here. Yeah. It's, and I thought, well, it's, it is Friday afternoon, so they're probably all heading out early. CEO came and got me, walked me back to her office. We walked through all the cubes. There was a human being in every single cube. It literally took my breath away. Well, people were like this. Can they be so blah Yeah. Through their work. How is there not communication, conversation, discussion, uh, challenging each other's ideas? That's what you see here. It's not perfect. We're absolutely, we're regular human beings here. And there's stuff that comes in from one, and there's stuff that comes in from our previous lives. But we have more of a chance to build relationships here because we're spending time together. We're communicating with one another. You know, people often ask me, what's the formula for you? Which is, you know, great quote from Patrick Lencioni in his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, wasn't it? It's not finance, it's not technology, it's not strategy, this teamwork alumni. And it gives you your most competitive advantage, both because it's so powerful and it's so rare. Most people give lip service to team. So people ask us, how do you build teams? I said, well, I think you build teams by building trust. So, well, how do you build trust? I said, I think the only way to build trust is to spend time together, enough time that you can build relationships. So they're spending time, there's building relationships, there's building trust, and then you get teamwork. That's what pumping fear out of the room gets you. Yeah, and I think that's a great transition into one of the other questions that we um, have been really wondering about, which is, you know, you hear so much about work flexibility and, um, you know, sort of like having people um, meet people's needs and preferences and a lot, obviously, about remote work versus in-person and how all these organizations or corporations are trying to get people back into their offices because, you know, they just, because. That there is no like after, right? Because I'm low and you have been here, mate. Exactly. And um and I and, and and we in our previous conversation I, I, I told you a little bit about how um you know, like my perception and you know, I'm in a very specific like I work mostly in the nonprofit like world. But in general, I feel like a lot of these corporations, organization, businesses wanna bring people back in because they wanna make sure they're working. Right. Mm -hmm. There is not these um, you know, like what? What is? What are the true benefits of it? So, um, I another thing that Christina and I were like thinking through is, you know, you are considered one of the, if not the most flexible place to work. So, tell us a little bit about, you know, the integration between remote, live, in person, 
obviously the physical space is a very important component to what you do. We talked about the visual cues. We talked about people being able to, you know, transition to places. We were just in your stand-up meeting where everybody is sort of sharing the same space and talking about what they're working on. So I can totally see, see sense and feel like the importance of the physical space. Um, but if you can maybe just tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, what this dilemma or this, you know, like debate about whether in person and at the office or remote is there. I love how you ask questions that I have about an hour worth of things <laughs> to say about them. Um, that's okay. You know, I love them. Uh, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about these things. Uh, there is no question as a company, we value being in the office and in person together. Yeah. And it is not because I'm lonely and I just want people around me. Uh, but as James and I have explained it over all of our years, we'd have to re-explain it after we started coming back from the pandemic, uh, even to our longtime Antonians, that one of the advantages we get by being in a room together, and remember we're pairing and we're sitting near one another in a big open and collaborative space, a noisy open and collaborative space, um, help arrives without a being asked point. Because if you two are working together and I'm sitting over here with my care partner and suddenly you two go quiet and you're not talking to each other, you're not even looking at each other, you're maybe just staring blankly at the screen or looking up at the ceiling, you are going to get help. Two people sitting near you, you know, slide away, say, hey, what's going on? And be like, what do you mean? Well, you were quiet. Oh, we're thinking about stuff. Well, what are you thinking about? Well, Christine wants to do it this way, and I want to do it this way, and we can't agree. Oh, great. Let's talk about the two ways you can have. And suddenly, we get you unstuck. You start moving forward. It's really hard to do in a remote environment. And so we've communicated to this team that being in the office is very important. Uh, and there are reasons that are important that have nothing to do with Rich and James are lonely and just need people around him. But we've learned over the, certainly over the course of the pandemic, and we had learned this beforehand, that there is great benefit to offering some flexibility when there's a big snowstorm up here in Michigan and uh, Chris lives far away and his uh, uh, son is off from school that day. And in the past, Chris would have to take a PTO day. He's got a computer at home. He can connect in like he did during the pandemic. We still get work for Chris, you know, he can, you know, stay on with his son. He can keep himself safe by not having to drive on snowy roads. So we absolutely have that flexibility. Uh, and I, I know our team appreciates that. A part of flexibility that we have that is kind of mind block to a lot of organizations, how we have a PTO policy that says, if you want to take time off, just take it. There is no permission slip mm-hmm. to take a vacation. Uh, I just found out this morning, Andrew's taking three or four weeks and going back to Uganda where he's from to see family. He didn't ask anybody, can I do that? Is that okay? Yes. Um, you know, he just told us, you know, you know, our, I always say our PTO requests are a statement of, I'm going to take this time off. And oh, by the way, no, you can't work when you're on vacation, you know, stay you know, uh, enjoy your family. You know, he hasn't seen, he hasn't been back there for years. Go enjoy yourself back there. And, uh, and we will, and, you know, and there's a lot of the systems we've put in place. And I think this is why, uh, we win workplace flexibility awards because Andrew has never worked alone. He doesn't have this singular tower of knowledge in his head about the thing he was looking on and therefore some big important project he's working on 
uh, will just come to a screeching halt while he's away, and we got to keep it going. So, Andrew, you know, make sure you get up early every morning and check your email. And, and I know that we've had team members whose spouses have gone along with them on vacation, mm-hmm. of course. And they're there on the beach with their laptop on their, you know, on their lap, and they're yeah. doing work emails or whatever they're doing, and they're watching their spouse playing with the kids out in the surf. Yeah. Don't you have to check work email? And their answer is no. Is that possible? Well, you know, we've built a system of work that allows for that kind of flexibility. And um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, communicate. We are, we, as a team, we are better wearing rope together. Uh, there is a flexibility that uh, we enjoy more of now because of what we learned through the pandemic that says, no, you don't have to force it when something doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. But when it does, when, when all other things that don't make sense are gone, we expect you to be here. Yeah. And there is value to that. There's value to teaching others. There's value to helping others. There's value to being part of pop-up conversations that you wouldn't necessarily uh, know about. And, you know, it's not lost on me that when the search in general says that loneliness is probably one of the most deadly things that's going on in the world, and this seemed, you know, it was probably always there. Yeah. But it's there magnified now because people are lonely. They're isolated. And I know there were some team members who, as reluctant as they were to start coming back in because patterns of life had yeah. changed for them, and they, you know, they said, I like being on. And then they come back here and they tell us, thank you. I really needed this. The walls were closing in on me. I wasn't having contact with any other human beings. We are not wired like that. Yeah. Humans are wired to be connected. Now, I can see a lot of places where if you're coming back and you're coming back to sit in an office to be on a Zoom call, boy, that does not make sense. Yeah. And I think you should take a look at some of your other practices if you're spending all day in meetings. Right. Or- mm-hmm. Yeah. So getting back to the office, but getting back to the the heart of the people and the processes that are when they're healthy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That was yeah. Mobby, you talked about the Deloitte report before. You want to talk a little bit about the human sustainability piece? Well, I think it's been throughout the conversation, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if there is anything that you want to go a little bit deeper on, but um, these we... Uh, we just interviewed somebody that was talking about how she's a consultant for businesses and how she would like really only work with leaders who were needing were or heart-centered leaders. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were talking about reading with you today, we were like, this is just like, we really perceive you as somebody who's little with their heart. And I feel that that's obviously very much engage to this human sustainability aspect of uh, the workplace, of the way that we approach our jobs and our teams and, you know, our communities, and it translates into everything um, that we do. So I think when we talked about, you know, systems and processes in place that really support that human connection, and at, at the beginning of the interview, you were talking about how you achieved all this level of success. But that didn't really, that wasn't meaning you, like you weren't approaching that from a place of joy or fulfillment, right? Um, so, yeah, is there something else that, that comes to you with regards to 
the way in which you nurture an environment where you're also building leaders here, right? So, and and one of the parallels that we've had or one of the things that we struggle with is a lot of what we see really feeds into the culture of our organization are very uh, personal characteristics, right? And and sort of you would think that they are innate to people like being kind and being open and communicating and being vulnerable, right? All of these are qualities that we as human beings know are key to our success as a species, right? <laughs> so you would expect that they just happen. But I see that our conversation has really turned somewhere like so many light bulbs for me because it's like you can also be intentional. There are ways of developing those qualities individually and as a community. And I feel that that's really tapping into that human sustainability concept. So, yeah, this is a very long-winded intro, but like, you know, is there something else that you feel when you look at what you've created and the way in which you connect with the people that you work that, um, you know, supports or takes you back to that idea of... So as I think about uh, the essence of what you're asking me and where do I connect into that, um, I think there is, you know, I have to make an admission. There's a part of Menlo that is incredibly selfish. I wanted to build a place. The fact that others want to join me on that is part of the joy for sure. Um, but um, the the kindness, the consideration for others, the support of other human beings is an expectation we are snutting for people who join us. Uh, too often, I think we, uh, when we interview, when we hire, when we onboard people, it's all about, oh, what technologies do you know? Or what, what experience do you have? Or what have you done in your past? And, and we, we forget to teach people, what are we about? You know, and I don't mean we, because I think we do a pretty good job at this. We start setting expectations from the moment of first contact. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to do this event we call an extreme interview. We're going to invite 30 or 40 people in to probably fill about four positions. Mm -hmm. And when they're in the road together, uh, we are going to not ask them any questions. We're going to start teaching them our culture. And the way we do it is experiential. We're going to pair candidates together, one with another. And uh, we're going to switch those pairs every 20 minutes. And they're going to work on things together while a Menlonian takes notes about what they see. Yeah. And what we communicate to the people coming in is that this first interview is one to simply start teaching you our culture and to see how you adapt to it. Yeah. And so we tell them that uh, we're looking for good kindergarten skills. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Do you play well with others. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and quite frankly, what we tell them, and it's a very weird instruction to give in an interview, if the two of you are competing for the same position, we tell you that your job is to help her get a second interview. And of course you're like, well, 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 wait, no, I want the second interview, huh? Support the person sitting next to you and see that. Yeah. If she's struggling, help her out. If she's nervous, calm her down. If she's uh, you know, got some answer, and she, but she can't quite get to it, and you can help her over the line. Mm -hmm. Do that, as opposed to let me show you how much I know by ignoring her. Um, and so there was a time where we kept using this phrase over and over again. And there's things like this at Memo where we kept saying to our team, 
what do you look for in a candidate to join a sale? We would say good character and skills. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the team's like, so what are those exactly? Mm-hmm. And I asked the team, I said, hey, go home tonight and find your kindergarten report card and bring it back in the next day. And uh, they said, well, what if I don't know where mine is? I said, if you don't. <laughs> and we got a pile of kindergarten. We got a pile of kindergarten report cards. And so I'll just I'll just go through one of them. Yeah. This is yeah. delightful. Love it. So here is um, Renee. So this was Renee's kindergarten report card from it looks like 1991, right? Yeah. Okay. So now I would say that we could read through all these, but let's just go through the social and emotional growth part. Important, yes. Works, plays, and shares with others. Is relaxed and confident has positive attitude, accepts responsibility for own actions, shows self-control, is courteous and considerate, listens without interrupting, respects rights and belongings of others, seeks help when needed, follows classroom and playground rules. Work habits, has adequate attention span, follows directions, works independently, completes tasks in reasonable time, works neatly and efficiently, works without disturbing others, gets out materials and puts them away. Uses time wisely a chosen task. I just had this moment where I'm like, and then, uh-huh. yeah. Because when I look at people and when I read those, it's like, cool to work. Right. Right. If every, if every like worker had those attributes so much, we wouldn't need this pod. No, we would be out of business. And it also takes me back. We had a conversation. I don't remember if it was recorded in the podcast, but. Um, in one of our conversations, we were talking about how when you get to the workplace, people assume you have all of that, right? That there is this like unspoken assumption. But then when you get to college, in college, they assume that you already learned that in school. Right, got- and then in high school, they assume that you got it in elementary school. In elementary school, you assume that you got So nobody is really being intentional about what they're looking for or what the person needs to work on in order to be able to function that way. And I would say it's even worse than that. Especially, well, I was saying through our education, but certainly back into the work environment. Then what we end up doing is pitting people on Yeah, Right. And I think that piece about the competition, mm-hmm. um, and I think for especially you as a leader, and I know you talk about this in your second book of like, it's impossible to create an environment that's sustainable for humans if your end goals are not aligned with that, right? If you're yep. internal drivers. Talk about that just a little bit. Well, you know, think about um, you know, probably every organization you will ever talk to, yeah. everyone that you will bump into around here. If you ask them, what's the thing you need more than anything else? Let's see, teamwork, yeah. collaboration. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what we need more than anything. And quite frankly, it's true. Yeah. Right. The problems we're trying to solve today are so complex. We need teams of human beings working together. So you'll hear throughout every rah rah speech, every opening meeting, the posters on the wall will all scream at you. We're better together. We can more collaboration, trust. And then there's one hour every year. Where you're going to your bosses and night size. Yeah. And the door closes. And your annual performance review is set down in front of you. And you are measured against your individual performance goals. Yeah. 
And then there's a magical moment towards the end that you've been waiting for. You're ignoring every onset to that point. Because the only thing you want to know is that I, this year, in this moment, exceeded expectations. I didn't just meet expectations. I don't believe any human ever went into an annual Kilpomestry game. I so. Yeah, oh, this year I kind of just goes to the long, I just met expectations. No, they're all like, this is my year. I exceeded expectations. And what does the boss say? Well, you know, only 3.7% of you think you should exceed expectations this year. And you got it five years ago. And you realize, oh, I get it. This is not me running faster than the tiger. This is me running faster than you. And I can throw you on the yeah. bus in the lunchroom and the boss is standing by. And so all of this teamwork, collaboration, and trust, and we're better together, washes away. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and I will tell you that uh, this is, you know, if I had the magic wand, I'd take grading out of schools, right? Or at least the competition to say, well, i got to get better than you. Because think of all the messages we're receiving. I mean, parents, I hear parents today are picking preschools because they have some track record that says, your preschoolers got into Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to send my kid to this preschool. And then what are parents doing? Can my child do the assignment? I have to do it for them because I want them to get into Harvard someday. Yeah. So we're robbing them of playtime. We're robbing them of creativity, imagination, adventure. Yeah. Then we wonder why we have anxious kids and all those sort of things. Oh, it doesn't have to be. It really yeah. doesn't have to be. The starting thing. So you've been doing this for a long time now. If we look back on your journey from um, from the start of Metalogy now, what I, I'm curious, where are you growing now? Where do you see your own growth and your own where you've been learning and developing in you know, this part of your journey? Yeah, I, I think right now um, I turned 66 this year, this past year. And so this part of me says this, this isn't going to go on forever. But I would like this to go on forever. Uh, I would certainly like it to outlive me. Yeah. And so the part I'm excited about now that we were, I will say, still in the beginning phases, and I have so much to learn about this, is how do I transition this? How do I leave behind something that outlives me but still and doesn't stay exactly the way I would stay it under me, but that continues to grow and be exciting for people to work at. And so I am paying a lot of attention to people who think about those kinds of transitions. Mm -hmm. Um and uh and there are a little, you know, there are a lot of good examples mm -hmm. on that's work. And there's a lot of bad examples yeah. on that's work. And I wanna learn from both <laughs> to avoid the bad examples and really focus on the good ones. And I'm I'm excited about becoming uh, I will say, purely a coach and mentor to the leaders that will follow me. And you are already. Yeah. Well, I, I think I've still got a lot to learn. Right. Yeah. But I appreciate it. Okay, I need to do that. I have a last question. Because I, um, so we, we were thinking of asking that also for Erika and uh, Lisa. But so I do believe, obviously, that you are an amazing example of, um, you know, what other organizations could do. But, you know, when you go into organizations that right now are facing like all the turnover, that they are really cannot figure out how to 
entice people to have belonging, to be there. Like they have, we have generational differences that they're struggling with. So you have a lot of organizations and you said at some point that are like really, you know, like not even, I, I think that maybe they are interested and actually the delay report showed this too, that leaders and executives thought that well-being was an important thing. They just didn't know what to do, right? And how to approach it. So if you were, you, you talked about the magic word, but if you were to come in to one organization that has like the typical stuff going on, what do you think is one thing that will, you know, be like a priority at least to start and to get them off in the right track? Yeah, and the general advice I give people is that um, much like my story with my eight-year-old daughter way back when is start with yourself. Mm-hmm. If, if you're walking in every day saying, well, I wish everybody around here could, uh, you know, do better, you know, and boy, Christine needs change, Bobby needs to change, and you're not looking at yourself, then I can tell you the change needs to start here. And then don't worry about changing the work. Just change your work. And then beacon out as an example to others. Um, because we often have local control within our organizations. So people who work for us, the local control I have is what spirit and attitude do I walk into the door with this morning? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I smile? Do I call you by name? Do I greet you? Do I, do I find out things about your life? Just that little bit of positive attitude coming in the world can make a huge difference. A perfect place to wrap this episode of. Thank you all so much for listening to this really special episode. Rich, thank you for being here. We really appreciate this opportunity. The fact that you traveled here to do this. We did, and we're so happy we did. It's been an amazing experience. Uh, we love your city and, you know, your community here. And, uh, yes, thank you so much for the work of our heart. Um, we are very, very grateful, and we are so happy to share this interview with our audience. Yes. So your job now, everybody needs to go get both books. Yes. I did long to come and schedule a visit to Ann Arbor because it's really a special place. And um, But really more than that, I think thinking through these lessons and thinking through what are the ways that you can take what you've learned and make the environment, make your world a more joyful place. Yeah. And until next time, spread the joy.